Hey, and welcome back to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. The AI revolution has become more mainstream than ever, and the rise of generative AI is having an obvious and pronounced impact on human employment, creativity, socialization, and much more. Often framed as helping and assisting humanity into a utopia of enhancement and increased equality, the impacts of AI are going far beyond and stand to transform not just the economy and society, but ourselves. AI is being rolled out at breakneck speed across nearly every sector imaginable, along with other emerging technologies, creating a surveillance grid that logs and analyzes every supply chain, every keystroke, and every transaction. Its proponents say it will tackle illicit activity and inefficiency, but is it even possible to harness AI for its positive use cases without succumbing to its more negative impacts, especially considering that AI is largely being programmed and maintained by our Silicon Valley overlords and their partners in the military and intelligence communities? Joining me to discuss this and more is Star, Unlimited Hangouts podcast producer and assistant, who has a lot of interesting perspectives on AI that I definitely think are worth sharing. So hey, Star, how's it going? Hi, good. Thanks. How are you? Oh, you know, doing swimmingly here to talk about (laughs) one of uh, the topics I get asked about uh, the most. And it's uh, obviously there's a lot happening with it. And as I said just a second ago, pretty much every sector is having some sort of disruption, quote unquote, caused by by AI and uh, media. The field where we work is also one of these uh, sectors that's, you know, in the news, even mainstream news, especially, you know, is talking a lot about the impacts of AI on on media, but also um, to, you know, it's also affecting alternative media quite a bit, I think, as well. So. Mm You know, like I said earlier, a lot of the narratives that were fed about like the promise of AI that it's going to, you know, uh, it reduce tedious work. People won't have to do tedious work anymore and sort of frame, you know, the emergence of AI is leading us to this sort of utopia. Well, um, maybe there's been sort of um, an, an ability for people to, you know, not have to do as, as much tedious work, I guess, in, in writing through like mm-hmm. ChatGPT, generative AI, maybe producing thumbnail art for media and whatever that can all be done in a few seconds with AI now. But, you know, the consequence, uh, one of the consequences of these that we've seen recently are these, um, ins- you know, these pretty big mass firings at legacy media that some people in alternative media are cheering on. But I don't really think it's necessarily something to cheer on because essentially what you have is, you know, if you view mainstream media as essentially stenographers of the state, you have these companies firing these mainstream media people and replacing them with generative AI, meaning that it's a more effective stenographer and they can produce right. more and more uh, content and they don't necessarily need people to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think that's necessarily a big win for independent media. It's not like these people, these sites um, or these leg- legacy media institutions are going to be producing less content. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's people that are cheering it on because they like hate mainstream media and, and whatever. But unfortunately, a lot of people in independent media, the dynamics that we, a lot of us in independent media used to be really against have been adopted by a, a pretty decent amount of people in independent media uh, these days. And it's un- it's pretty unfortunate. But I mean, I'm sure some people in independent media are using, well, I know they are. Yeah, uh, a lot of this generative uh, AI stuff. And, you know, frankly, that kind of concerns me because as soon as uh, ChatGPT was sort of like brought out um, and, and popularized, uh, you know, they were saying that generative AI is going to be like 90% of all content by 2025. So that's like a year from now. 
And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? It, well, and it's not also just, um, you know, mainstream media that's going to be using it. There's plenty of shows that independent media doesn't like that still talk about the same type of stuff that they do, you know, like mm -hmm. along those same themes. So it's like, it's not like it's not going to happen to you just because you think you're some kind of truth teller or something like that. It's going to happen to like everywhere it's just a they don't need as many people to do the work well i also think a lot of this like the ai dot coming or the emerging really ai dominance in 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 media um is going to have a lot of impacts on the censorship agenda which is going to have a huge impact on independent media obviously mm -hmm. um because the goal um well, I talked about this in a recent interview with with Catherine Austin Fitz, and it's uh, unfortunately uh, paywalled just because of how she runs her site. But, um, you know, in there, um, a lot of what I talked about was this Henry Kissinger and, and Schmidt book mm -hmm. on AI. And they essentially lay out that the goal is to have generative AI, uh, you know, produce all the messaging, whether it's about news or political messaging or really messaging about anything, just mm -hmm. online content, period, and then have that be curated by AI. So like AI is is censoring out the stuff that doesn't fit, you know, and, and if stuff that AI, and, and if they want, you know, essentially as they, you know, Kissinger and Schmidt lay out it all to be essentially AI produced and like on top of that managed by, by AI, anything that's like written by people that's not written by AI is going to like stick out to the AI, you know, and be easier to, easier to censor, which is uh, not good. So, you know, I, I understand that people like, like some of the utility of it and it's, you know, there's some convenience, I'm sure. Uh, to being able to produce a wall of text in like three seconds with this thing. But yeah. it's, um, it, I think it's a bit complicated too. And I also wonder a lot about, you know, chat GPT specifically, you know, I've never used it, but as I understand it, you have to have like an account. Mm -hmm. And so every question you ask it, it logs and yes. I'm sure sends back to the Sam Altman mothership yeah. <laughs> to see what people are asking. And it keeps your history. So, and that can be subpoenaed. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it keeps your history. So, and, you know, I've heard, I've seen people talking about that. So I always delete everything I ask it, but you can use other ones besides chat GPT too, which is sure. something that people, you know, can think of. Yeah, but I'm just sort of thinking about how when these, these things that are novel get rolled out and people don't use them without thinking about how they're going to use your data against you. So like, you know, Facebook or something, when that first came out, people were like, oh yeah, I'm going to like ping my location and tell it exactly where I am. And I'm going to like yes. link it to this and that. And I'm going to post like all my pictures and mm -hmm. all this stuff, you know, and then, oh, it turns out yep. Facebook has all these weird connections to people like Peter Thiel and DARPA and whatever. <laughs> Maybe we like shouldn't give them our data, you know? And people don't even remember what they've given. I remember when I was young, I mean, I'm a lot older than you are, but I went to college in like the 90s when computers were first coming around. And when I first went to college, I was using the computer all the time. And there was this guy that went to my school who was super like, he was kind of like the Unabomber. He was really like weird and paranoid and, you know, just kind of reminded me of that guy. And uh, I always thought about how he was kind of this guy was kind of right for being so paranoid you know and I kind of was paranoid too like I'm not gonna you know leave my trails everywhere and I thought about that from the time I first started using the internet back in like you know the 90s and there are some people who just from the time they started using the computer just you know would tell everybody everything yeah 
you know, this is where I live. These are the things that I like, you know, and all that stuff is still out there and they don't remember what they've told, but they've pretty much told everything. Well, I think like you get a computer, you think of it as yours and it's like, oh, this is where I'm putting all my stuff. You're not thinking about like other people accessing it, even though a lot of, uh, well, intelligence agencies have funded a ton of these Silicon Valley companies that dominate everything that, you know, they've been pretty open about. Not super open about, but like it's been reported on and documented that they can get into pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not really, you know, yours as much as you as you might think it is. And anyway, going back to like chat GPT and this other stuff, you know, people are asking it, I'm sure all sorts of stuff. And then you have like people, uh, this sort of advent of like AI, quote unquote, people, you know, AI girlfriends, AI therapists, AI... I don't know, everything in that sort of strain, I guess. And mm -hmm. I, presumably that's logging all of your interactions too and sending it somewhere. Disturbing. <laughs> anyway, um, but what really concerns me too about um, AI, not just, well, so like the the end goal of this for the powers that be, if you believe people like Henry Kissinger and, and Eric Schmidt, um, is to have basically everything we interact with in terms of information online be produced and, and curated uh, by AI. And, you know, what's interesting too, is there's been this narrative seated about um, bad people using AI mm -hmm. that way, you know, for like mm -hmm. AI for disinformation and for I, ISIS is recruiting people with AI and stuff and, and all of these narratives. So it, it seems likely that, you know, I think we'll see more of that narrative. And as it progresses, they'll try and get like, you know, only certain people are allowed to have a chat GPT account and ask it stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, but there's so many of them. I mean, it, there's that one, that I think I sent you this link, that uncensored.ai. And you can't actually get an account on it. I think there's like a waiting list or something like that. But I mean, you, you anybody can make one. You know, I mean, there's so many of them. So I don't think they can prevent people from using them because... Yeah, I mean, maybe they can prevent them from using like the big ones. But I mean, even Mark Zuckerberg, like uh, last week, because, you know, his language model, Llama, mm -hmm. um, he's like saying he wants to make it open source, you know, because I think he knows that that's what people want. Yeah. Well, some people like assume open source means like yeah. free of bad, nefarious code. And that's not necessarily true. Open source just means it's available and people have to go in and audit the code. And if yeah. no one audits the code, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever <laughs> you know but um you know i i've talked a lot about the the push the coming push to like regulate the internet specifically um <clears throat> which is like a definite definite policy goal and so i think you know in if they succeed in that and there's like a particular galvanizing event that makes people call for a, a privacy free internet and all of that stuff it's very possible that you know, there would be restrictions on who gets to use AI for information um, and, <clears throat> and and who doesn't. Because a lot of the stuff in this Kissinger Smith book is like basically an outline about how to use AI to take us back to the dark ages in a lot of in a lot of ways, I, I feel hmm. um, specifically about like the flow of information. So like um, a lot of not necessarily, I, I mean, this isn't necessarily how the dark ages ended, but like with the invention of like the printing press and like the, uh, um, the democratization of information mm -hmm. and it being able to get it, you know, out there, uh, you know, before information was like very controlled and like it was controlled like by the church. Yeah. 
specifically and only like, mm-hmm. yeah. And like only like clergy or like specific people could have access to that and like learn to read mm-hmm. and, and all of this stuff. And sort of the idea that they, these guys lay out is, is basically using AI uh, to take us back to that. <laughs> which is very crazy um, because it's being sold as like it as enhancing humanity and, and all of this stuff. And you won't have to do tedious work. And it's sort of been sort of the justification for pushing for things like UBI, you know, universal basic income and, and all of this stuff. But it seems like, you know, the way like these guys are actually thinking and the way this is beginning to manifest as AI is leading to mass firings in, in some sectors and surely more in the future. Um, you know, I think we're going to, be seeing what they they really have in store more and more so i read this book too and um i you know i've heard how you talk about your interpretation of the book and i think i agree with you you know that they are veiling their true thoughts but don't you think that they also are truly concerned i mean these people do know that there are dangers with the AI and that, and that they have to go about it the right way. And it seems like the book was warning of some of the dangers. Yeah. But I think the way these people work is that they like warn of some dangers and some of the dangers are true, but they like their solutions to those dangers are like what they wanted the whole time. The benefit to them. Right. Yeah. And so whatever they're like proposing, they're like, we should be afraid of this. And this is the only reasonable solution, but it's not the only reasonable solution, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Eric Schmidt is is also going around, you know, after he wrote this saying, like, we have to uh, link people's social media accounts to uh, their IDs so that we can report them to law enforcement when they, like, post disinformation and stuff. I can't even believe that people still have this idea that if I'm not doing something wrong, then I don't care. I, I really can't understand what, how, why people think that. And they do. It's like, it's very naive, honestly, because if you consider how AI is being um, used right now, for example, like in in facial recognition and stuff, um, there's been like a series of issues in the UK with them trying to roll out like real time facial recognition technology because Mm. the the accuracy is like super low. (laughs) Yeah. And, but, but they're still like, they're not going back and like fixing it. They're not like changing providers. Like if you, were the state and you were meaningfully trying to like make an AI facial recognition system that works, you would go and try and find another like provider that has higher accuracy or something. Yeah. And they've shown no interest in doing that. And so I think essentially what they're trying to do, um, I mean, it sort of reminds me of the movie Brazil. I I think you said you hadn't seen it, but it's like this 1985 like sci-fi movie. Um, One of the guys from Monty Python made it. Uh, but it's not a comedy at all. And basically it, it starts off with the, you know, it's this big um, dystopian bureaucracy, sort of, you know, just like a lot of the other, you know, famous British dystopia, you know, works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's and basically like they make a mistake, like some guy in, in the Ministry of Information or something like squishes a fly and it falls in in like the printer as it's printing out an arrest warrant. And so like one letter is changed in this guy's last name. And so they go and they arrest and they end up interrogating and murdering like an innocent guy and all these other people that try to like report the wrongful arrest or like try and rectify the situation or let the government know they made a mistake, like end up being like over the course of the movie, like arrested and, you know, tortured and stuff. And it's be- and basically like the message of the of the movie, I think, in, in that sense is like, you know, the the 
the state, the government, like a government like this isn't necessarily interested in things being right, you know, because the system, like a totalitarian system, just by virtue of like the fear of that maybe happening to you will keep people in line, you know? It just kind of reminds me of like predictive programming in movies. And it's kind of like where if it's anything less than these horrible things that they show us in these movies that people aren't they're okay with that as long as it's not those horrible things that they've showed us well i mean it's it's a way of like normalizing it i guess in a way or like desensitizing people to it to an extent maybe Mm -hmm. um but the um, what i was saying about brazil there's like this french philosopher whose like name i'm awful at pronouncing because i'm really just bad in general at pronouncing french names no offense to anyone but um it, it's like Foucault or something like that. It, oh, it's spelled yeah. like Foucault is how it's spelled, oh, yeah, but yeah. not how it's mm-hmm. said. Yeah, that guy. So anyway, the the people at Palantir, you know, Peter Thiel and Alex Karp's company, but if you're familiar with my work, is is the privatized version of total information awareness. Um, they, like, love that guy and have, like, pictures of him in the offices. New York Times had, like, a big profile on them in, like, 2019 or 2020, somewhere in there, and they, like, posed under his picture. <clears throat> And and that guy basically developed or like expanded on the idea of of panopticon, which is reflected in the movie Brazil, which is the idea that like if you know you're being watched, especially if you know you're being watched by like something authoritarian, uh, you will you're more likely to like self regulate your compliance, you know. Um, and so it's not about it being accurate or not; like they don't care, you know. Mm -hmm. What they care about is like you, like, uh, (laughs) they surveil you because you know, it means like they're watching and that you'll regulate your own behavior. You'll like self-censor in all senses, Mm -hmm. you know, not just like what you post online, but like how you act and, and behave, um, because you know that, that it's like watching you, but it's not about like it for that to happen. They don't care about accuracy. It's about like inducing that effect at, at scale. And mm-hmm. so, like, if if these AI, you know, facial recognition or whatever algorithms are put in charge of, like, it doesn't, you know, to these guys, it doesn't really matter how accurate. <laughs> like, they don't, they're, none of them are 100% accurate, yeah. And they're being rolled out to decide, like, major stuff about, like, law enforcement and governance and, and other things, you know. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that's definitely not talked about enough. I mean, I'm sure part of it is, like, the same you know, corporate griftiness of like, oh, you know, this is my brother's company and I'm going to give them the contract, even though their AI algorithm is crap compared to the other ones. Like, I'm sure there's a degree of that in there too. But ultimately, like, they're not like AI in terms of like being hyper efficient, like it, it is at some stuff, but some of the things that's being sold is like a solution for it's uh not accurate and has yeah. big uh in in when applied to like law enforcement settings mm-hmm. or which have the potential to, to decide who lives and who dies just like military settings you know it becomes a really big issue there. well and you don't know when it's being accurate that's the problem it's like if you could know if it was obvious when it was hallucinating that wouldn't be a problem. But I mean, sometimes, you know, I've experimented when it first came out, I didn't want to do it at all. But then, you know, something made me kind of look at it in a different way. And so I kind of checked it out a little bit. And um, some of the things, the mistakes, it just makes stuff up. It really does. It'll make up court cases, um, studies, it'll give you names of studies that don't exist. 
numbers for court cases that don't even exist, you know? So, but it seems like it's, you know, they've had, I've read all these articles about how in court, somebody will go to court with some information that they got from AI and it's not even true. Yeah. Insane. Well, this is uh, going back to media, you know, AI, like taking over mainstream media journalist jobs. It's not a good thing. <laughs> it's like, like e- e- a more talented bullshitter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if you're going to have to uh, verify everything that it says, well, then what's the point of using it? You're supposed to be using it to save time, but you need somebody to come back and check everything it says anyways. Or you just believe everything it says without questioning because it's sold to you as being superior and, and more intelligent. You know, that's how I know that the Kissinger Schmidt AI book is uh, full of SHIT, you know, mm-hmm. because basically if they were being honest about like their warnings and all of this stuff and not just using it to like, you know, sort of give their uh, veiled plans, you know, leak them out to the the public, they would definitely have noted that AI like has accuracy problems, that it hallucinates. It's a known phenomenon. And instead they're like, AI is our ticket into undiscovered worlds, basically. And it sees all these hidden realities that we cannot see. And so we should trust super intelligent AI to be our guide to these undiscovered realms or whatever. And like, no, um, because you like, because of these other documented things that these guys obviously know about, mm-hmm. um, you, there's no guarantee that that's even real if you can't verify and observe it. Mm-hmm. Like AI produces, like hallucinates and, pro- and produces output that is completely like erroneous. And these guys don't acknowledge that once in the book. They frame it as, as something that like we have to just trust and that it's superior to us. And that's, I think, what the elite want us to think and to put like blind faith into the AI. And there's these different groups too that like want to create like religion around AI that have come out of Silicon Valley and, and sort of related uh, field sort of these some of them are call themselves data is and then there's like this one guy in silicon valley that's tried to make a church of ai and ai is writing sermons and some churches and stuff like getting a little weird mm-hmm. so they definitely are um i mean i just think that whole um narrative that ai is um super intelligent and that its errors aren't really errors at all but like realities that are just hidden to us lowly humans like i could not distrust that narrative more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's basically telling us not to interpret our own reality anymore and saying we should let the AI do that for us, which is a major theme in that Kissinger Schmidt book. And they say that that will happen specifically to the class that isn't involved with programming and maintaining AI, the underclass. But the idea here and what they overtly lay out in this in this book is, is about how um, AI is increasingly making our decisions for us, right? Mm-hmm. And not and not just like um, big decisions necessarily, but also um, you know what music we listen to, like the algorithm on YouTube. Um, you know, it's like cultivating our learning our preferences, and then also subtly cultivating our preferences and all of that stuff. And that eventually, like, we won't know how to live without it. That's essentially um, what they say in that book. And they talk a lot about that. And, um, you know, I guess more it, it's more broader implications that, like, without knowing, without having AI summarize stuff that's long, we won't read the long stuff, you know? And without mm-hmm. AI, like, interpreting 
you know, this thing or that thing for us. Like we won't understand it without like the AI summary or the whatever yeah. it produces that we, we we grow accustomed to and all of this stuff. And yeah. they basically say that this particular class uh, won't understand at a certain point, won't understand AI at all and won't understand how AI is acting on them, that they'll, that, that there will be some anxiety in this large underclass because they'll know they're being acted upon and watched by something, but not understand what it's doing to them is essentially what they say. It's very uh -huh. disturbing, but they, again, that book relatively well, you know, cloaks it as like, oh, they're warning about these things, right. but they cast them as inevitabilities at the same time. And then, you know, I mean, the people that write the like Eric Schmidt is like one of the people building this vision out through his work with like the national security commission on AI and uh, his like extreme influence on the Biden administration uh, science policy. I mean, he basically runs it and is funding salaries of like Biden administration people. It's totally illegal. He shouldn't be able to do that. Um, and then also dominating how it's being implemented in the military and the intelligence communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that's a lot of power for one guy. And so he, you know, has the power to, you know, make anything happen really with, when it comes to like AI implementation in, in the U S. And so a lot of the warnings he's talking about, I mean, it's all, um, if you look at his actions with it, I mean, with the book, it becomes very clear what the book is actually saying, you know? And th at this time right now where we're at, where everybody's talking about it and there's no real policies, you know, like they have interim policies, but there's no real policies. So it kind of feels like everybody's trying to get what they want right now before, Mm -hmm. you know, before the regulations get put into place. Yeah. And I think, you know, AI regulation is going to just what you talked about, how there, how there are these different generative AIs, like not just chat GPT and whatever. Yeah. I'm sure when they regulate it, they'll make it so that those, those little ones that maybe are a little bit better or whatever in terms of like data harvesting or whatever, probably will not be allowed to go forward. You know, I mean, regulation in, in these types of spaces, whether it's like, um, you know, like the coming regulation on, on crypto or any of these other like emerging technologies or things related to them. I mean, Congress is essentially acting as kingmakers for the companies in this unregulated space. You know, they get to decide who continue gets to who's, you know, I mean, obviously some companies are going to be more favored by regulations than others. And generally how this works is that those companies have the most lobbyists and the most pull why those regulations are being written by Congress. And then they go through and those companies win. And then other companies that, you know, are essentially boxed out after the regulations are pushed through, you know. And a lot of times when this happens in the States, it's like you either, you know, it, it sort of started, I guess, maybe in the 70s under Nixon with like agriculture. It was like this whole idea of like get big or get out. Like if you're a small mom and pop company, um, you know, government regulation no longer favors you, you know, and so they tend to favor sort of these big, big ones that are, you know, we're always going to be part of it. Um, but they take out the little guys once they regulate, you know. Mm -hmm. At the WEF, there was a, a talk. I shared it. Uh, I can't remember who it was that was talking, but they were talking about how in the future they want to have it. So this was about... Uh, what they train their AIs on and the, in the content, you know, these, mm -hmm. these are, you know, so they want to make it so that they can serve content from these companies that allow them to use their content to train AI, mm. you know, so like make these deals with all these companies, you let us train on your content and then we'll feed, you know, 
feed people to you. Yeah. Make it a deal. Yeah. Which is, sounds horrible. It sounds really boring. Well, there's a lot of that going on. I mean, in um, in China, they created like a, a stock exchange, but it's not stocks. It's like da- companies' data. And so they like trade it like on an exchange. Mm. And like all these state-owned companies, like all of their all of their data and user data. And then they can use it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of these companies are like, oh, well, Anna, you know, it's been anonymized and we don't you don't have to worry about your privacy. But I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe they do, but a lot of them I'm I'm sure probably don't, or at least don't do it effectively, you know. Yeah, but I mean, they've been saying for years that data is the new oil and all of this stuff. And so I think what people don't realize is that it's like your data is the new oil and they're making lots of money off of your data and you are not making any money. And instead, your money is being hyperinflated away or trickling up to the billionaire class. Um, But they, you know, making a lot of money off of you more than ever before. Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow. (laughs) depressing huh i'm sorry i'm like a big black pill <laughs> a big walking talking black pill <clears throat> i mean i don't really feel like it's black pilling in a sense because i think it's important to be like aware of mm-hmm. um how these guys see this stuff you know and i mean because otherwise we can't really fight against us 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 little people right uh, at the bottom um and and the way things are going i mean i think people need to start divesting off of some of these, you know, specifically like big tech stuff, just because it's like they're one of the clearest actors in, involved in using our data for bad things and have taken an increasing control of the military and the government in the US. It's honestly pretty insane. And then you add all of that, this new era they're trying to push through of like AI weapons and all of that which is either coming from it's all coming from silicon valley people i mean the push of that i mean eric schmidt is a big driver of that and the other big driver of that is peter Thiel. and uh you know these are all big silicon valley guys with very deep ties to the worst parts of the u.s government and uh i don't know i think them being in charge of uh or developing these like autonomous ai drones with guns i mean all of that sounds like an awful idea to me for sure well, war is always like the reason, it seems that it's always the reason for innovation, right? I mean, since the beginning of time, it's about like innovation and us, killing people. Yeah. Well, and making <laughs> yeah. yourself be the one that survives or gets more or gets what you want. I mean, that's always the thing that propels um, innovation. Well, the last few big conflicts, so you have like the Gaza conflict right now that's going to spread regionally. And then uh, the Ukraine conflict, those have been huge test beds specifically for like U.S. military linked AI companies. So specifically the Peter Thiel stuff, um, very big in or fun, he's funding it, um, in, you know, in Ukraine, like autonomous drones and all of that. A lot of it um, is the front man for a lot of these companies is Palmer Lucky, who's the guy that made Oculus Rift, like the virtual reality stuff that was sold to Facebook, where Peter Thiel was a big investor and basically like made for help make Facebook the company it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's, his company is Anduril, which is also not just making all these like autonomous drones and stuff, but also making like surveillance towers that are on the U S Mexico border and all of this stuff. And 
you know, it's all interfaced too with this other Peter Thiel funded thing like Clearview AI. They're like facial recognition thing where they've scraped all your images from Facebook and uh, including people like that don't have Facebook accounts, but other people have taken their pictures and like uploaded it to Facebook and stuff, you know, uh, trying to make this engine for crazy, crazy dystopia. Yeehaw. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned um, the border and, you know, Andrea, I, I wanted to mention this because it always surprises people. A lot of people know this, but like 60% of the U.S. population lives in a constitution free zone. Yeah. People because they live within <laughs> like, yeah, um, when you live within a certain amount of distance between borders, then that's considered constitution free zones. And about 60% of the population lives in those zones. That's insane. Yeah, because if you think of borders, I think they count like coastal areas as borders, yes. right? Even Yeah, right. So that's like California, all of Florida, <laughs> the two most populous states, right? Yep. And I think it's like 100 miles in or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Well, it's definitely important to consider given all like the the stuff going on right now over the the border in Texas specifically in this uh, showdown, as it were, between like states and the federal government over border stuff. But honestly, I think um, a decent amount of that is uh, pretty manufactured because bad things are, um, if if people let them, are are likely to play out um, as a consequence of that. And I've been saying for a long time, too, that like once stuff in the U.S. gets uh, particularly dicey or, you know, there's too much overreach and people get uh, too upset that the border, um, you know, like specifically the stuff Palmer, Palmer Lucky has. I mean, it's there and it's active. They're just not using it for people coming in, right? So how much of that stuff is to also keep people from, like, coming out at a future right. point, you know? It's not just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the whole border border thing, I mean, it's an election year, too, so there's a lot of stuff going on. And I think, you know, this is going to be the year of unprecedented uh, psyops for sure. And I think a lot of that is going to be very AI-enabled, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. The, the the process of fighting against AI. I mean, it's, it, you can just look at YouTube and, and appealing censorship. It's almost impossible to appeal an AI decision. Well, sure. And then you have on top of it, like, you know, just on social media stuff alone. I mean, for the past like decade, at least the U.S. military has like put in a ton of money into making like social media bot armies basically Mm -hmm. and with generative ai which now like chat gpt is an example openly has like a thing with the military now um like they can have the most sophisticated bots like ever to like influence opinion and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i I just think people don't really realize that when they're interacting on social media so many people think like all the a lot of likes and like you know people that are boosted by the algorithm and all that stuff it is organic because people like it just like they think that like the the video the pop songs on like radio that get played over and over again are being played over and over again because people want that it's not because people want that <laughs> it's because that's what they want you to hear and what they want you to see right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and they manufacture its popularity because everyone assumes oh it's being played so much or i'm seeing so much of this or this has so many likes that it must be popular right people must be liking it but it's it's a completely like off i mean not all the time but a lot of the times it's manufactured yeah you you have to wonder like okay so why is this person so popular and i've never even heard of them 
you would think you would have heard of some of these people if it if it was real. Yeah, well, you know, speaking of like Twitter specifically or X or or whatever it is now, um, you know, th- there's been this whole thing like around Elon and like people that promote Elon get bigger boosts and like monetization and and what have you. And, you know, there's this whole effort to like co-opt the quote unquote dissident right. You know, a lot of the people that were like against COVID measures and against, you know, digital IDs, CBDCs sort of heard them into being like, you know, pro Elon, pro Elon brain chip, who's a contractor for military and intelligence agencies, you know? I saw RFK praising Elon the other day saying, thank you for providing a free speech platform. Oh, I missed that, but it's not a free speech platform. That's unfortunate. Well, Alex Jones was calling for Texas to secede and, and elect Elon Musk as its first president. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, social media. It's a. It's right. definitely a war zone these days, and it's all about um, trying to get people to perceive reality a specific right. way. And... Um, I think what's likely um, in 2024 is to basically, you know, through AI and other means, AI enabled means, um, among others, um, get basically this this faction of people on the right that don't trust the government at all to feel like their guy won, meaning Trump. And then they'll be, um, you know, a lot more acquiescent and compliant to the rollout of all this stuff. Because, I mean, just like it was with, you know, COVID, you know. Yeah. Trump uh, delivered on all of that for the elites and uh, you know, he's sort of regained his anti-establishment cred, I guess, but with all these court cases trying to take him off the ballot and whatever. And now some of his biggest uh, sort of like influencers like Alex Jones, I guess, you know, he's, he's been replatformed and rehabilitated as like a pro Elon guy and obviously pro Trump once again, despite all the vaccine stuff. Um, to basically, you know, sell, you know, Trump winning as this is what's going to save America, yada, yada, yada. Um, I don't know. I mean, people forget. I can't blame people for thinking that, though, because you have to look at what we have now. I mean, obviously, they're not doing anything for people. Well, exactly. But people people forget how the left-right paradigm works. Right. So, you know, it's it's the left hand and the right hand of the same thing. Yes. Yeah. And so one side makes a mess of things and the other side comes in and quote unquote cleans it up, offering the solution that they wanted the whole time. But it's cheered on as being the solution to the problem created by the other hand, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. All this, uh, all this stuff with the border and a lot of this chaos it's it's obvious that the the group that's going to come in and fix that is going to be the party that's traditionally been tough on terror and tough on crime, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of those policies are going to be weaponized against regular Americans. Right. Make no mistake about it. And there's going to be a push for ID because of the migrant issue, and it's going to be digital ID. But pe- they want people on the right to cheer it on because people on the right have most of the guns, you know. Mm-hmm. And can probably actually resist stuff to an extent and make it harder for them. So they have to basically psyop that segment of the populace more than anyone else to get, you know, what they want through. And I think a lot of the stuff that's being set up by Biden, I mean, people act like it's incompetence. It's not. It's intentionally being allowed to grow into this insane uh, situation so that they can come in with very heavy handed solutions later on. 
And I think it's likely they'll have uh, they'll want to have Trump deliver those solutions instead of Biden. Yeah, because people seem to like him. Well, I mean, he did operation. I mean, the Teflon Don thing, right? I mean, he did Operation Warp Speed, uh, and a, a, an insane amount of his base was so against that. And now they, a lot of his base, remember it as being Biden's mandates and Biden's vaccine. Like Trump wasn't involved in it at all. Um, and that's the, I mean, that's again, how the left, right paradigm works. You can like offload all of the sins of the current era yeah. onto the current administration. And the other guy acts like he's going to be all against it, but they're the same at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, people forget that when Trump came to power, he like made this team of economic ad- advisors that was like Larry Fink from BlackRock and Jamie Dimon and like all of these guys and was the like bankers. super tied up with, yeah, super tied yeah. up with Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, had warmongers in his, his administration after campaigning on being against neocons and all of this stuff. And he's one of these guys that's very good at having rhetoric that's drastically different than their actions. And it's the rhetoric that re- resonates with people. And then uh, and then they just keep pushing forward in a lot of the same agendas. And, you know, I mean, when COVID happened, one of the first people... Uh, Trump went to was Larry Fink of BlackRock who then got all this money that was printed by the Fed and then got to decide where to allocate it and all this stuff for COVID relief. No one, I mean, he printed so much money. I mean, he did stuff that was like so against what he campaigned on and people just have totally forgotten about all of this. And they act like, oh, he didn't start any new wars, but he tried to coup Venezuela and he tried to start a war with Iran. They like murdered Qasem Soleimani, like one of the top Iranian generals Mm -hmm. and stuff. Why he was on a diplomatic mission. Like they tried to start wars. They just didn't. Like it's, I, I don't know. I mean, I just feel like the way people have come to like remember it speaks to the power of of how media can manipulate people because that that's independent media supposedly that's manipulated Trump's base to feel that way, mm-hmm. or at least this sort of like dissident right base to go back into the Trump fold, you know? And it's because precisely a lot of those guys are seen as being against the mainstream media. And the if that's been so effective, imagine how effective it'll be when it's boosted by all this AI stuff, you know, not good. And I think also there's this strategy they've had for a long time called like the flood the zone strategy where they can just put out so much messaging in a particular way to manipulate people. And with AI, like, oh my gosh, you can flood the zone like never before, you know? Yeah. I don't understand. I mean, it seems like it should be really easy to make people understand that Trump is on the side of the bankers. People hate bankers. I don't understand why it's so hard to make the connection there. He I mean, if you look at his history in New York and everything that happened with the, you know, all the loans that he got there. And I mean, he's on their bankruptcies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The the guy that rescued him for bankruptcy, he made secretary of commerce, Wilbur Ross, a former who was a worked for, I think it was NM Rothschild or one of the Rothschild Inc. Maybe one of the Rothschild family banks is what rescued Trump from bankruptcy. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I think it it is obvious, but what people point to by default is like oh but then why are they trying to stop trump and they meaning like the deep state or whatever and it's like if they really wanted to stop trump they would have already you know and by these these overtures like they're going to stop him but they're not actually stopping him and making like this media hoopla about it they're making they're manufacturing trust and this whole thing of the world economic forum right now where people like larry fink are on the board is how to rebuild trust. Right. 
that's their theme. It's been their, it was their theme this year. It was their theme, I think, last year and the year before. They're very focused on rebuilding trust. I mean, why do you think they had someone at the WEF, uh, like Javier Malay? Why'd they give him an audience to come up and, and, you know, everyone was like, oh yeah, he got up there and he shit on everybody. Like, I don't think that's what's happening. What I think is happening is that there's this phase shift where they're going to try and sell the same uh, agendas that the the quote unquote dissident movement in the U.S. is against. Let's say digital IDs and CBDCs as an example, but it's a lot of other policies rolled up in that. Uh, They want to sell that to, uh, instead of having these talking points about it being like ESG or for climate change or for whatever, they're retooling that to appeal to people that are right-leaning, mm-hmm. I think. And you're even, I mean, like with Larry Fink, who's like the point guy for that, like he was all about like ESG, climate change, all those like left-leaning talking points. And now he's moving to the right and being like, well, we should do all of the same stuff, but it's not, you know, for the planet or for the good of society or inclusivity and in, in talking points that resonate more on the left. He's saying, oh, well, you can make a lot of money doing this. And everyone can make a lot of money doing this, you know, Um, and uh, sort of talking about like, you know, pushing for deregulation and stuff like that. And I mean, that's exactly what Malay's doing. And like Malay came to power sort of in a similar way uh, to Trump having sort of like this extreme campaign rhetoric uh, that resonated with people who were very angry at the political class. And I mean, it, it, it was cathartic with Trump and it's also cathartic with Malay to hear them crap all over the power establishment that have like been bad to people and everyone hates, you know, but the problem is, you know, Malay gets into office and after railing against the political establishment, he puts the political establishment back in power, not the one he just replaced, which was the left leaning one. He went back to the administration before that, the center right party guy, Mauricio Macri took a bunch of people from his administration and put them back in power. And like his finance minister, he campaigned all about being in a, in, you know, an anarchist and all this stuff. And his like, economics, his top economics guy and finance minister is like a career, uh, you know, Latin American point man for Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan and stuff. Like, <laughs> it's not good, you know? And uh, he's super cozy with the IMF. And he, everyone in Argentina hates the IMF because they've been trying to privatize all their state assets and force austerity on them and stuff. And Malay just like has done everything the IMF wanted to do to Argentina and more without the whole like debt slavery angle of it. It's a, uh, it's very nuts. And so I think the fact that Malay's being invited there is just indicative that, you know, they're trying to get trust uh, people that are against policies sought by the WEF. They have certain political influencers they want to roll out there and have people trust those guys. And then those guys will deliver the policy goals that, you know, the the West and these guys have wanted all along. And I think, honestly, the digital ID thing is going to be sold as like a solution to the migration issue. We have to know who everyone is. Uh, like the the longstanding Republican push for voter ID, which I'm not against. Yeah, this is like, I mean, people like hear me talk about this stuff and immediately like think I have to be on one side or another. I'm on neither side, you know, but um, yeah, they're, they'll just, you know, roll out that talking point and be like, oh, well, you know, everyone has to have voter ID. Oh, but it has to be digital or whatever. Because I mean, people like Ron DeSantis who were, you know, Postures being against CBDCs, for example, like digital IDs are already rolling out in Florida. 
So he's not against that. I mean, maybe he's against CBDCs, but you know, I've done some reports and interviews recently about how that's like um, just a setup to have like, instead of a, a, a CBDC like issued by the central bank, the fed, they're going to do it, but it's going to be issued by wall street and it's not going to be called a CBDC, but it's going to be the same thing. So anyway, they'll still have that. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I feel like I'm kind of rambling about this, but I honestly feel like there's this intentional shift here um, to try and move uh, to get like this energy behind the dissident right. And Oh yeah. Independent media is winning and we're free and all of this stuff. And our guy's going to come back into office and like save everything and save the world. It's uh, I don't know. People just have to remember what happened last time and no one does. I was reading something about, um, the digital, well, like, uh, online verification, you know, to prevent misinformation or something like that. But then the problems involved with that being like, uh, well, it could be a target for, you know, hackers. And so then the solution to that they were looking at, and this was from like one of these sites that you follow, like, uh, you know, government press release type sites. And it was saying that they were looking at banks, because they're more secure, you know, so, so it would be, Mm -hmm. yeah, you would authenticate yourself through your bank. Yep. Online. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, cause bankers are driving a lot of this stuff forward, like the CBDC digital ID thing. Um, I mean, if you read stuff like from the sustainable development goals, agenda 2030 of the UN that every country has pretty much signed on to, uh, CBDCs and digital IDs go together. They must as, as, as it's laid out there. And, um, I mean, most of this stuff at the UN, including all their climate finance and climate action stuff and a lot of the other SEG stuff, it's been written by bankers. It's been written by bankers. People assume it's written by like UN experts who are somehow like not part, like, you know, neutral and like experts in their field, sort of like the idea, like it's an FDR brain trust style thing. (laughs) It's not that at all. It's literally written by bankers about how to like screw you and your children and all generations to come and basically turn everybody and everything alive and do financial products to be traded on like uh, blockchain exchanges and stuff. I mean, it's totally insane when you actually read into it and stuff. And I just, I can't stand it, but uh yeah people really think the un is on on their side here but all that cbdc digital id stuff uh was written by by bankers pretty much and so yeah i mean a lot of the stuff i've written about before about the push for like a regulated internet it's um it's banks and intelligence agencies pretty much so like the UN climate finance thing is like, oh, we need to save the planet and do this stuff and they put mark carney and mike bloomberg in charge of it who were like the top bank, I mean, just like, I mean, really powerful people who have built their careers by like stepping on people's heads, you know, and clawing their way to the top. And you're supposed to believe these people like are setting up all these systems because they care about the planet. It's madness. And what they're really doing is they're just like um, creating like carbon markets where they can tokenize and like turn everything alive Uh into like assets and uh you know financial products it's insane so yeah i mean these guys don't really care about people at all and they but they've spent a lot of money especially you know 
well, they spend a lot of money basically on propaganda, on public relations to convince us they care. But I mean, obviously their actions, particularly like Wall Street bankers, I mean, it makes it really clear, you know, what they're motivated by. And I mean, a lot of it is more than money. You know, I think, you know, independent media, people that talk about these agendas, you know, there's a lot of, of to be said about how it's really more about control than profit at this point. But I think, you know, one way of looking at their interest and control is not so much of it as like, oh, they love to control people as like, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's people that are in it for that, you know, and do like that. But I think there's some also that see it as like necessary for, I guess, risk management. You know, I think they see um, like an un, um, sort of like a free mat, like, the, if the public, if the masses were free to them, I think they would view that as like just uncontrollable, unpredictable, and makes it harder for them to do what they want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of these people's lifestyles is also like predicated on them being to do whatever they want with the masses because they like use our labor, they use us in other ways, or they steal from us in order to like maintain their specific lifestyle. And they obviously have like no intention of changing that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think it, it sort of comes down to like this, you know, whole like risk. Um, I mean, I'm sure they see it as like a risk management thing in like big parts of, of the elite. And I, but I think the problem there too, is that like, what do they see as risk and what do they see as chaos? And I think at the end of the day, just like human creativity or like something that's not, completely controlled like by machines and stuff for them is going to be viewed as inherently risky because they can't like, unless they can like extreme influence us to like ex extreme, extreme degrees. Uh, they'll never be able to like manage away all the risk of there being like billions of independent people on the planet that aren't necessarily going to do what they want to do every time. You know, I mean, they put so much money and so much effort into manipulating us and AI is allowing them to do that at scale, you know, in, in unprecedented ways. And a lot of the stuff in the Kissinger Schmidt book is essentially using AI, AI to like suck us into realities that aren't even necessarily real um, and stuff. But I think a big part of that is because, you know, AI can give us the impression of this creativity and, and of this, uh, of this consciousness and of this stuff that keeps us engaged and interested, but with a lot less risk for them than if it were, you know, something happening organically and not like a synthetic thing like AI, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, when we were talking about doing this podcast, um, we were just kind of, you know, talking back and forth and you, you said something about they want predictability. And that was really kind of like mind blowing for me because I was thinking about it all that time about the angle of like, I don't understand how they think this is going to work because they're building on top of lies. You know, they're, they're like training on, they're, they're training from the media and the media has been telling lies. So how are they expecting to get truth out of these, like, you know, AI models that they're building and stuff. And you said that they don't care about truth. They want predictability. And that was kind of um, like the change <laughs> the way I thought about it because I care about truth. So I just assume that that's what they would care about, but that's not what they care about. They care about different yeah. things. Yeah. Well, they tell you they care about it, you know, and it's just like, you know, how a lot of AI that they're using is inaccurate, like we were talking about earlier, and they act like it's going to make things more efficient, like that's the selling point, but it doesn't actually do that because it's like a lot of the time it's inaccurate and they don't care. They just want it to be 
a, con- a controlled system that they can manipulate. And if it has glitches, they'll cover it up like, you know, like happens in like the Brazil movie and stuff. Mm-hmm. They'll just cover it up and like eliminate the people that know about the mistake and just like paper over it and keep going. Cause it's not, it's not about what they say it's about. It's like not about accuracy. It's not about preventing misinformation. So the truth can endure, right. It's about creating essentially manufacturing reality through AI um, and changing how we perceive reality and having us be dependent on AI to perceive reality. Because if you control how people receive reality, you can control how they behave. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is like an unprecedented effort to, to be able to push humans into a system that they, they'll know how it operates. And I think a lot of this stuff, like more, that they plan for AI that isn't necessarily here yet. Like a lot of it with healthcare and like, you know, wearables and the internet of bodies and the internet of things stuff like escalating a lot. And like AI will like, I go through your genome and, and all of this stuff. I mean, it's all about just trying to like tweak a system so that like, there's nothing unpredictable that arises in it. And I think that's why, you know, pretty much not, I don't know if it's necessarily every sector AI is being rolled out in, but a lot of them have an extreme um, focus on like predictive analytics and stuff Um, like predicting what people are going to do before they do it. And it's all about like anticipating risks before they happen Mm -hmm. and and all of this stuff. And I, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's so like um, they don't have to worry about like uprisings from the little people, you know, they can like micromanage it all. And I I think, you know, AI, a big part of it too, when you tie in like the whole like eugenics potential and like healthcare um, posturing of a lot of this AI stuff is to basically, you know, tweak humanity so that it can only survive in the system they're building with it. Like this dependence on AI, I think they don't just want it to be cognitive, like is sort of laid out in that Kissinger Schmidt stuff. Um, but I think they wanted to, you know, at, at some point in the future, like be biological, like create biological dependencies on this stuff. I think that's part of like the transhumanism thing, maybe an aspect of it that's not talked about um, so much is like just having us not be able to live without these. I mean, we're already so dependent on like big tech and, and all that for like how we conduct our lives, but we're not necessarily like dependent on it to live to like actually live you know like in theory we can still walk away and like unplug and stuff and i think uh well there's a couple different you know reasons as to why they may not want that there's like the dataist religious level of it for some of these people um and there's also of course you know as i've talked about before on stuff a lot of like religious overtones on that some people imbue into the whole trans transhumanist um movement but i think it's i think it's also like just people um wanting to be able to create some sort of system that keeps humans like engaged and entrapped and we're producing all the data that they're using to run the economy now and moving forward to like this you know they call it like the data economy and there's also talk of like the dna economy and how dna is going to be used to store data and like all of this stuff i mean it, like the 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 potential applications of a lot of stuff happening right now uh i mean some of these powerful people larry fink included want to take all of this stuff to like an insane level that i think a lot of people haven't like 
fully understand. So like there's this thing that I've been writing about lately and the article's not out yet, but will hopefully be out soon. That's about the broader like tokenization agenda where Larry Fink talked about the tokenization revolution recently, how everything's going to be tokenized and so that it can be traded on, on blockchain and they want to do it. Um, you know, not, it's not just like things that are financial stuff right now. Like it's not just, I, I mean, they want to be, they want to tokenize like every living thing um, natural assets, all of that stuff that I've touched on before and on stuff on the whole natural capital, natural asset corporation stuff, but also like there's people tokenizing their careers, their projected future profits, like from their career, like trying to tokenize themselves. Um, they're like, like artists trying to tokenize like their creativity so it can be like traded and sold and like make the money and stuff. Oh, wow. I mean, essentially where all of this stuff, yeah, it's really crazy. And so essentially where all of this stuff is leading, if these people get their way is that like, essentially everything on earth will be, be able to be like traded on a blockchain and, um, be, a, a wall street financial product. Oh, wow. And Yeah. <laughs> And it, Wall Street, every Yay. thing. <laughs> but I mean, that I mean, it's not all just Wall Street. But Wall Street is like a key part of of the you know the power brokers of the system because they control the money, right? Yeah, and uh, they control central banking in the United States, and they have you know a lot of influence over things that that happen in the world. And I mean, I think sometimes people point the finger. Um, you know, I mean, I think what we're meant to do, um, is, you know, point the figure at the, this politician or that politician. But I mean, people also know, and it should know by now that politicians are funded by people and their ideas aren't organic a lot of the time. And they're just like, you know, doing what they're told to do and saying what they're told to say. I mean, you have like a politician rolled out, but they have like speech writers and people that you know, tell them what to say and write their speeches and like coach them on, on debates and like develop their policies. It's like not all this one guy. And those people work for think tanks funded by these guys and those guys, you know, um, people don't look at those power structures a lot of the time. They just want you focused on the influencer, you know? Um, and we really shouldn't be doing that because I think, you know, if there's anything we've learned since, you know, the COVID era, it's that there's a lot more going on than maybe people assumed. Um, and there's a lot of power grabs happening right now. And honestly, a lot of this stuff, um, you know, going on in the financial space right now is, is really all about just trying to literally turn everything you can possibly think of, uh, into like money or an asset that they can fractionalize, meaning like cut into little pieces and then tokenize, make a token of it so that they can like trade it and rob you in unprecedented ways, you know? And the way this was being pitched before was stuff like, oh, we had to do this like for the planet. Like we need to tokenize everything with carbon in it, which is like all life forms, carbon based life, <laughs> right? Tokenize rainforests and stuff, you know, uh, we, it, we're doing it for the planet. And then now you have like people like Larry Fink, like I mentioned earlier, going through like this big shift in rhetoric where it's not about that kind of stuff anymore. It's about, oh, well, think about how much money you can make by um, tokenizing your private property, your land holdings, and then you can use it as collateral on loans. Oh, look, you can't pay back your loan. I guess uh, BlackRock owns, uh, you know, three-fifths of your land now, um, and then they'll eventually own all of it, you know? And then because everything, when you, there's like this thing, this push also to like fractionalize it all, like fractionalized ownership 
that is like the whole you'll own nothing and be happy thing. You know, everyone's going to rent everything. And it's being pitched right now as like a decentralized, like right leaning anarcho capitalist thing right now between people like Malay and Fink and, and, and all this, this stuff happening uh, right now. And people, I mean, some people might buy into it thinking like they're going to get rich or like this is, you know, a chance for the little people to claw back some wealth. But I mean, come on, guys, the, <laughs> they don't want to share their wealth with you and they've stolen wealth from you and they have no intention of giving it back. And if they're going to like offer you a carrot to try and get it back, uh, be very wary about that, you know, because that's a way to get you roped in. And they know that like their existing talking points of ESG and let's save the planet, let's build a better, more inclusive, diverse society. They know all of that is not working anymore. And now they have all their best minds thinking about how to get people suckered into the same system under different talking points. And it's happening in real time. And I suppose that this podcast is mostly about AI and maybe it's been a little more about some other stuff too, but I guess AI is touching, you know, essentially every facet of, of life right now. <clears throat> and uh, there's just a lot going on with it that I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot. So uh, if it's cool with you, Star, unless you wanted to, to say anything else that's related to that, then maybe we could talk a little bit about um, some of this AI military and, and governance stuff. Um going on. And well, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but there's a little more I'd like to say about it. Sure. Cool. So talking about like the AI healthcare eugenic stuff. Um, and I think that should be looked at through the lens also of what's going on with like AI in the military. So people I'm sure have heard about the use, the IDF's use of AI in Gaza to pick targets. And it's essentially uh, picking tons of civilians, obviously, because of who's getting killed. And the, the, the death toll is just like completely insane. And it's, uh, and the, the IDF won't say like what the, how the AI like chooses its targets, like what the parameters are or anything. Um, but essentially what you're having here is like AI developing kill lists for people. So like back in the, I mean, I'm sure you remember star, like back in the Obama administration, Obama having a kill list was like mm -hmm. super controversial Right. And now I guess it's not um, because people are making like AI generated kill lists that are bigger and bigger with like no transparency into them at all. Um, and essentially AI is picking who lives and who dies and what are the parameters and what happens when that gets, you know, scaled. I mean, Palestine, uh, Ukraine also is a test bed for a lot of this AI weaponry and it, it's going to be weaponized against, you know, countries are going to use it against their own populaces and also at, you know, populations they're at war with. It's not, I mean, once this stuff comes out of the box, it's not just something that um, is going to just be a wartime thing necessarily. I mean, a lot of like historically, like the, the IDF and the Israeli defense industry, they do a lot of like testing of products. I mean, I hate to call it that because I mean, it's, it's genocide right now, but uh, you know, they're, from their perspective, this is a way to say that their products are battle tested, even though like they're blowing up kids and stuff. But I mean, in terms of marketing, that's how they say it, you know, I mean, once they do that, they, they sell this stuff all over the world and it, it, it ends up getting used. I mean, a lot of like Israeli spyware, for example, uh, that's framed as like helping catch quote unquote terrorists gets used by like, I don't know, the, the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia against their own people, like as an example, you know? And so like the whole idea that AI, you know, 
I think one of the main things that AI is going to be used for and why people should be wary about freely giving your data to it is that it's going to be increasingly used by governments to decide who gets what. And it's not necessarily who lives and who dies, though that is happening, but it could be, you know, in, in a future situation, let's say like, you know, more supply chain shocks to the, you know, the food system or whatever. And like, you know, food stamps are essentially been obliterated in the U.S. at this point. But what happens if they roll back some sort of, you know, roll out some sort of system like the the U.N. right now basically uses the world coin system for uh, like food rations. Right. Um, where you have to like scan your eyeball and it, it's like linked to your digital ID and your wallet. And it like takes out how much money of your wallet automatically when you like sign out at the cash register by scanning your eyeball and stuff. That's like the world food program is doing that to millions of people, everyday refugees around the world. And it's very likely that they'll be trying to do that, um, for like food assistance and welfare stuff uh, domestically and all of that. But, you know, if the AI determines, oh, this person's done this or that and shouldn't qualify, I mean, it enables all of this kind of stuff. And to think, you know, the people in power right now wouldn't use it for those ends, honestly, I think is pretty, um, naive. And I think ultimately, you know, there are a lot of people that are sort of eugenics minded in power. And it seems to me that a lot of them want AI trained on all this personal data of everyone because they want to decide, you know, certain traits they want to preserve, and people, and they want to, you know, favor the success of those people. So those people will get preferential treatment. And then the ones that, you know, have undesirable traits will probably not get selective treatment. You know what I mean? I mean, it has the potential for all of that. Um, you know, if we let this advance enough and, you know, the way things are going right now, I mean, a lot of people like are pushing back in some ways, but I think also people just don't realize like, what the, these people plan for AI, it's basically going to be like the livestock herder and like we are the livestock and it decides who to call and who not to call, who to feed and who not to feed, you know? Um, and I think, um, I don't know. I mean, we're just willingly giving it all of this power by feeding it all of the data and not divesting from these companies that are, you know, saying they want to do that. So I guess maybe that's a good time then to circle back to the question I had at, at the intro of, you know, if the people programming and maintaining AI now and that are poised to set AI regulations were presumably after they make those regulations, only the AI, they, these groups, you know, program and maintain will be allowed, you know, can we use AI for positive use cases then? Uh, or is the negative too negative? I mean, I guess it would depend ultimately on, on regulation and if they would allow any sort of like open source or alternative um, AI models to exist. I, I don't think that they can. What, how do you think that they can stop them from existing? How can they um, realistically say that you can't have, you know, I, it's already out of the bottle. The genie's already out. I don't think that they can like say that. Cause I mean, there's so many language, there's so many um, AI, um, you know, systems that are already mm -hmm. out there and it's only been a year now. How are they, what are they going to do to say that people can't use it however way they want? I just don't think that that's possible. Yeah. I think it, I mean, I would normally agree with you, but um, they're definitely going to try to regulate the internet. 
And when that happens, they, it's going to be a completely different internet than it is now. So if the internet as it is now, we're going to persist, I tend to agree with you that at least some stuff would slip through the cracks or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. but I think, you know, it's, it's similar to how they're probably going to regulate like cryptocurrency in the U S they're going to decide like which, um, you know, which stable coins are okay. You know, which dollar pig stable coins are okay. Like which, you know, which companies can produce a digital dollar and which ones can't, you know, they'll make the regulations So they, they're kingmakers basically. And I think they'll probably do that too for artificial intelligence. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, what this like regulated internet to come, the whole narrative about it is like, Oh, you know, there's hackers and there's these other people that do bad things online. So to stop illicit activity, we have to end online privacy and know what everyone's doing and says online. And so I think AI, you know, in that paradigm, like they'll only want to allow AI that like tracks and logs everything you're asking it and then sends it back to the intelligence agencies. But people you care know? about privacy. I don't think they're just going to go along with that. Yeah, I know. But the problem is like the infrastructure of the internet is actually pretty centralized when you think about it. Like most of the internet, like... Mm -hmm. It runs basically on like 13 or something servers globally. Um, yeah, that's pretty centralized. And a lot of, you know, uh, like some of the people that run that like dominate the domain name system of the internet, like I can, for example, they're very tied up in all these efforts to regulate the internet and, you know, uh, in policies like taking down people's websites for thought crime and stuff. So I think there is going to be a push and I think people may still be able to use it um, in ways that they don't want. But Yeah, but you don't need to use it online. Right. But I think that's the only people that are going to do that kind of stuff are going to yeah. be people that are like tech, technically right. like sophisticated technologically. And I think most people are not. I understand what you're saying, but I disagree because it's not hard to install you know, I have one installed on my computer right now. It's not hard. You just install it on your computer. It's local. There's tons of local AIs that you can put on your computer. So, yeah, but I guess like some of the negative impacts, like I'm trying to talk about, you know, like the data harvesting and sending it back to them for like predictive analytics and like all of the stuff, like harvesting data about you and, and whatever. And if they want to like go after quote unquote thought crime and all this stuff, which like, honestly, they seem to be gearing up to do. Like, how safe is it to use that? I mean, ideally, you would look for AIs that don't harvest your data that way and send it to these guys. But, like... But they take the data off the internet anyways. I mean, using the chat GPT is no different than using the internet. I don't think there's uh, much of a difference. But what I'm saying is, like, the internet's going to be regulated, and then the internet is not going to be safe to use, is my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know? And like how AI is going to be in that paradigm. I think it's also going to be fundamentally like very unsafe. Yeah. I, I don't agree with you that um, I, I understand your side for sure that, you know, you're giving your data to the AI. I think we're already giving it to them. They're already taking it regardless of if we give it to them or not. And I think that um, there's a lot of things that are really powerful you know, it's, it's a tool like everything else. You know, people don't like people who use Bitcoin. People don't like people who use all kinds of technologies, right? But um, I think that, I think that the thing is, is you have to know 
I mean, this could just be me being idealistic or wanting to be able to use it. So I'm justifying it and I'm not even really using it very much. I'm, I'm exploring it to see, um, you know, kind of the things that it can do and stuff. But um, I don't really think that not using it is really that impactful. I think that you can get something out of it, you know, instead of deciding that you're going to not use it. Yeah, but I, you know, I feel like I've gone over a decent amount of, like, negative impacts of it on, like, people cognitively. Well, I mean, I, I guess I could have said more on that. Um, but, I, I, you know, in terms of, like, a dual-use thing, you know, that was, like, the whole reason for, like, going back to Palantir, right? So, like, the name Palantir derives from like Lord of the Rings and it's like an object in the Lord of the Rings that is like neither good nor bad. It's like a powerful tool. And depending on who holds it, right. You know, it determines whether it's good or bad. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think AI is much the same. And I think, you know, once they regulate AI, they'll regulate for the purpose of having AI be as firmly as possible in the hands of the bad people, mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm trying to say. But AI is such a broad term. I mean, what are you talking about? Because uh, artificial intelligence, when uh, it seems like people have just started calling it AI in the last year since chat GPT, you know, so like generative models or whatever. Is that what we're talking about? Because AI. Well, I'm not talking about generative AI specifically because that like generates text or it generates images. I mean, it's very different than like some of the other AIs we've been talking about in terms of like military targeting or like facial recognition you know and and some of these other ones and i mean we didn't really get at all into like you know singularity like artificial general intelligence stuff right um yeah but i mean obviously there's like different ais but i think ultimately you know whatever regulatory framework is is passed through in the in the coming years is going to be focused on um you know, preventing AI that isn't under their control from being widely adopted. And, you know, what does that, you know, mean <laughs> uh, for the utility of AI to the masses? I mean, I think maybe now people can get stuff out of it. Um, but I think people also have to, like, be wary of the risks um, and that ultimately AI is, like, risk management from the elites in the sense of, like, keeping you from um, doing things they don't want or, you know, bucking against the system they're, they're trying to create. And like, um, you know, it's a novel tool. It's a powerful tool. It definitely has positive use cases, but can we make use of those given who's programming and maintaining and dominating the space right now? So, what are people using AI for right now? What people are excited about is using it to, you know, clean up their text, make pictures, you know, write stuff, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of computer programs that can help you clean up your text. You know, there's, it's kind of like, it's like a, you know, one size fits all type solution. It's, it's something that can do everything instead of having to go to, you know, all these different apps and kind of doing it yourself. It's kind of like, like a just a better version of all of those things in one yeah i mean I, I i get that i think what i'm worried about is people um getting lulled into a spot where they can't work without it because well, i mean obviously it's still novel right but think about yeah. like three years from now and, and everyone is like 
writing with chat GPT and, and kids in school, like instead of mm -hmm. writing essays or chat GPTing them all and they never actually learn how to write and like mm -hmm. what kind of impact does that have down the line? Especially when like these bigger thinkers are saying like, this is what is going to happen and tacitly saying this is what we want to happen to the underclass, you know? Do you think that people said the same thing about computers? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they did. And like television and all of that stuff. Right. Um, and I mean, I don't necessarily think they were wrong about a lot of the risks. But the problem is people were never really, I think, at a wide level made aware of the risks. Mm -hmm. um, and it ended up like having those negative consequences once like the novelty yeah. sort of wore off. So I guess what I'm saying is people have to be aware of the, I guess, the where they want to take this and like, sure, it's fine to use for now, but just be aware of where they want this to go and like, make sure you have red lines that you won't cross about this stuff and about like what happens when the regulatory hammer comes in and they try and end online privacy entirely. Because I mean, like you said now, like, you know, people care about their privacy, but I mean, as I've done, I've done a lot of work on this, you know, over the past few years about there's definitely going to be some sort of event where, you know, privacy, online privacy is the enemy. And the only way to stop these cyber attacks or whatever they are is, is to eliminate privacy online. Like we have to demask everyone or unmask everyone. And we have to know who everyone is. And you already have people like Jordan Peterson has been pushing for this. Nikki Haley and a bunch of people in like you know, right leaning. And then also like, you know, on, on the left, there's pushes for it too. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty like talked about thing. Even Elon Musk before he bought Twitter was talking about like verify all humans and all of this stuff. I think that is a red line people should definitely have and not cross is when they start doing the link your government issued ID to your online activity. Um, if you want to know why I think that, please refer back to uh, all my reporting on the war on domestic terror and the infrastructure for that. Um, and because honestly it's, uh, targeting people that like, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it would, would be viewed as traditional Americans, the domestic terror stuff, but also anyone who's like against the state or state policies or anti-war. I mean, probably people that listen to this podcast. Environmentalists. Yeah. No, envi environmentalists were on there too. Yeah. I mean, and people assume that it's like all, you know, people on the left think the domestic terror stuff is all for you know, right wing people who are at January 6th and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, people on the right, um, you know, will think it's for, I don't know, uh, Hamas supporters or whatever. I don't, I don't know what the rhetoric is at this point, but I'm sure it's dumb. So, but ultimately it's about anyone that, that threatens, you know, or isn't willing to comply about certain things. So, you know, don't make it easy for them. Because, you know, here's the thing about the ID stuff on the internet. Um, they already know what you say online and what sites you visit and all of that. You linking your ID to that isn't going to give them greater visibility necessarily than beyond what they already have. The difference is once they can link your ID to that, um, they can legally go after you. Because the way they're like spying on everyone is technically illegal and unconstitutional. So they can't prosecute you necessarily on that stuff that they obtain illegally, you know? Right. And so they can, if they can tie your ID legally to it. If they say this is a law to use the internet, you have to be using it with your, you know, 
Because right yeah. now you could say, oh, somebody else used my computer. Yeah. Or, there's more of a gray area now and also like, you know, the illegal um, wiretapping and all of that of communications. They can't, I mean, you know, they can use that to get like warrants and stuff maybe in these like FISA courts and stuff, but it's like, they can't go after most people with that, you know? And it's not like they want to put everyone in jail, but yeah, you know, as an example, um, under the Trump administration, they almost created this agency called HARPA that actually Biden ended up making, but he, he changed it to ARPA H, but it's like health DARPA is the idea of it. And it's the same people that were trying to push it in the Trump administration too. And the first program they wanted to put out, which was promoted by Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump was called safe homes. I've written about it before. It's an acronym for something. And basically that program was about using AI to go through social media posts and identify social media posts for early neuropsychiatric warning signs of violence. All of this being under the guise of stopping mass shootings before they happen in the U.S. It wasn't just like, oh, okay, it gets flagged and it sends people to prison. It was like, send them to a court-ordered psychologist and stuff and like medicate them <laughs> or like put them under house arrest. And there was like a whole variant, uh, there was a whole like spectrum of stuff you could do to someone who gets flagged by this thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the best way to not be flagged is to not be on it at all. <laughs> because again, AI is really inaccurate or can be in certain situations and misunderstand certain things and not be able to parse certain things. It's probably not great at detecting sarcasm, for example. Um, and if it becomes, if there, these programs come to fruition, it's, it's not going to be very good, you know, because people that don't deserve to be caught up in this mess are going to be caught up in this mess, basically. And uh, it was pitched during Trump. Uh, it almost happened. Biden created the agency and a lot of the other infrastructure for domestic terror. But I'm sure that kind of program is going to be here soon, uh, whether it's a Biden or Trump. I mean, I don't think it really matters. I mean, during the Trump administration, they legalized pre-crime, which is something that like hardly anyone knows about. Uh, William Barr created a pre-crime program that's still Department of Justice policy called DEEP. You know, they've arrested people and put them in prison for social media posts and stuff. Um, that could escalate. I feel like when you say, though, not be on it at all, you, I don't see a difference between what you're saying about AI or, you know, whatever you mean by saying AI and the, and the Internet. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I guess, like, what I mean is, like, social media, like, being like I, I'm talking about like once you add the ID thing, mm -hmm. you know, or like once these programs get rolled out where they're yeah. trying to like hunt for domestic terrorists, like don't the easiest way to make it hard for them is to just not engage with that system. It's weaponizing a system that used to be good against people, you know, mm -hmm. in a way that's like unconstitutional and completely insane, frankly. And like maybe you know, it was great before to use social media to reach people. And for certain things, it's obviously had like some negative consequences, social media, particularly like on young people and stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying like illegalized social media, but these people are trying to twist and use all of these things that we've gotten used to or dependent on for various things. And then, you know, under the Palantir model, this dual use neutral tool thing, you know, are trying to turn it 
to the dark side, mm-hmm. right? If you if you get what I'm saying. So like I guess what I'm saying is not like necessarily like be a Luddite, but once this stuff, these these things happen, yeah, th- these regulations and laws and programs come in, you should not engage or you should engage with something completely parallel that does not interact with that system. Mm-hmm. Or you should I mean, the internet is just a bunch of shared servers. I mean, there's nothing really stopping people from making some sort of parallel server system where you can still do some of this stuff and some of this stuff can get out. You know what I mean? Um, My problem is about like the centralization and how literally the worst people in the world are trying to use AI for particular ends. And we definitely can't use their AI going forward we have to find a way to stop that and it's and 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 in that sense it's also true of the internet yeah because they're they're you know doing similar things to both i think Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that um you know the local ai thing i think is you know there's like this there's all different kinds of them you know and and i think right now everybody's just really excited about the fact (laughs) i read somebody say something like uh that the fact that a dog is talking you know like they're not excited (laughs) so much (laughs) about the thing they're excited about just wow look what it can do yeah but yeah we can uh take away the ability that they have to control our lives by you know cultivating what we want by you know following websites through rss instead of you know going to twitter to get your news i mean there's lots of things that we can do but i also think i don't think they're going to make it so that you can't use a a language model you know on your computer i don't think that that's going to happen i think that well what if they're like you have to get digital id to use it Do you think that's likely? I don't think that that's possible. I think as long as you can buy a computer, I think that you can install whatever you want on your computer. And there's no way that they're going to be able to stop you from installing that as a program unless they make the entire thing illegal. Like, are they going to make large language models illegal? No, but if it's, if it's, if your access to it is like an account based thing, I mean, I think the big ones could definitely require. Most of them do. A lot of them, you have to pay money to even use them. But, like, they're not all owned by the big corporations. Well, for now, I mean, OpenAI and ChatGBT is basically Microsoft. And I'm sure a lot of the other ones will get swallowed up. Yeah. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future. But I don't think that it's just going to all... There's plenty of people that are interested in it enough to make sure that that there's stuff that isn't, like, corporately controlled. I just don't see that it's going to end up like um, something that we can't use to our benefit. Yeah. I'm just, I'm sure some stuff will slip through the cracks. I guess what I'm saying is that it's, they're going to make it so that you have to be really like technologically sophisticated in order to do that. I also don't agree with that because it's easy to install a program on your computer. And, And there's plenty of people, there's so many people online who are like trying to help people divest from this sort of stuff. You know, all you have to do is know how to get on Reddit, but to what you say, well, you know, maybe this information is going to be harder. You say the internet's totally going to change. Maybe people aren't even going to be able to get on the internet unless they're willing to give up, you know, their ID, you know? And so you have to decide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you brought up awareness, you know, and that's kind of like what I wanted to talk about, too, about that book that I was reading. So I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later or what. Sure. Go for it. Okay. Well, 
I heard about this book that was written in 1964. It's called Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man it's by Marshall McLuhan. This guy is considered like the father of modern media studies. He, after this book came out, some ad executives kind of swooped him up and put him on a tour of like, you know, interviews. And he was on a lot of TV shows and stuff. He kind of reminded me of like, uh, like a Bernays or something, somebody who they were like really embracing his ideas and kind of everybody was mm-hmm. talking about him. And so he is the person who coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And so he kind of thinks that we shouldn't necessarily focus on what the content of the medium is, but what the actual medium is and study that when, when you're looking at like its effect on people understanding media the extensions of man so what is a medium he says it's an extension of ourself or any new technology so like the wheel is a medium that extends our senses he defines it as like an ex- something that extends our abilities past ourselves and so mm-hmm. a light bulb is a medium a fork is a medium because that is an extension of our fingers light bulb is an extension of our eyes anything that is lo- allows us to sense further than ourselves and so he talks about um how we used to be in the mechanical age and that would be like the wheel and stuff like that but we're now in the electric age so when he talks about media being an extension of ourselves it's basically like it's an extension of our central nervous system because it allows us to know more about things that we can't see right in front of us. And so now that we're in the electric age, we can, everything is instantaneous. You know, we can access all of the information right away, whatever we want. There's a quote from the book. What we have to consider is the psychic and social consequences of the designs or patterns as they amplify or accelerate existing processes. So when you're looking at a medium, the message is the ways that it changes society. So like, that's what I think that we need to do. We need to look at AI and and kind of examine it in a way where we can understand not necessarily, you know, the content that it has, but how it's changing us. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit, but I think that um, brings, when you, when you think about it like that, it allows you to understand it in a different way. Instead of focusing on what it's doing, uh, like what it's doing for you, we can think about what it's doing to all of us as a society. And once we understand that, then we can, maybe decide if we want to do that, decide if we don't want to do that, you know, that type of stuff. So if you, if you look at, you know, AI is like the newest iteration of this extension of the central nervous system, then I guess then people coming in to manipulate AI to like, instead of, you know, being part of the, the extension of our efforts to sense and understand the world around us and like process information, truthful information. And like seeking that out, it's like an, a, a way of sort of uh, hijacking the next inter- iteration of that to like lead us in a different direction, you right. know, yeah. to like instead of leading us 
to finding more about our reality and understanding the world to lead us to sort of like a closed off system, um, hurting us into that, uh, and sort of trapping our central nervous systems there, you know? Right. (laughs) Totally. That's sort of how, how I see it. So I guess then in, in the sense, what we have then is a decision of how, uh, how do we avert that diversion AI being used in that diversionary way by the powers that be mm-hmm. um, and, and keep it at, as a, a thing that sort of helps us to expand our access to information. Um, and I think ultimately it comes down to who's, you know, making the rules and, you know, dominating the AI industry and how can we decentralize that and, you know, prevent this extreme central centralized control over all of it Mm -hmm. i guess i don't really think it's going to be able to be centralized the control of ai as a medium well i hope not but i think it again it comes down to like what people are going to do to prevent that and what i see right now is that the people that are trying to prevent that are like much more technologically sophisticated than everyone else that's using it Mm -hmm. Right, and that it's easier to just go along with the way things are than to try and, like, you know, be, like, conscious about things. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Totally. I agree with you. I do agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds like it's I okay don't agree if you with disagree. you. No, no, no. But I think it's good because it, it, it just helps me explain it better. Like, no, I love it. Because this is the first time I've heard you talk about the book. I've told you a lot about the book, but I haven't heard your response to it. Uh, Something else interesting that he talks about in the book is how all media shapes our identity and that all new medium contains uh, content from the previous medium. So like books contain content from the previous medium, which was handwritten text or like manuscripts and stuff. And then the printing press and then like radio and TV. So like TV contains, you know, radio and plays and stuff like that. And so it all kind of shows us the past. The new media shows us the past. Mm -hmm. And like, we live in this um, idea of what the past was because the new thing is showing us the past. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting. And like, interesting. Yeah. Because, shapes our identity uh i found it interesting that artists and writers and stuff like that are the ones that are so threatened right now by ai as they should be because their jobs you know and their ability to make money Mm -hmm. is going Mm -hmm. away but it's just interesting because it ai is actually a threat to their identity as artists as Mm -hmm. creators you know sure yeah kind of disturbing to think about it that way but yeah Mm -hmm. yeah No, but I feel like I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. I mean, it does make sense. Um, but something I've thought about before about like identity, and I've said this in I think some interviews of, of maybe a few years ago. Um, you know, in terms of like the control of information, like why it's so important to the elites, um, you know, is because it like shapes our identities. So like if our identities are sh- shaped by like who we think we are, like where we come from. Yeah, you know, it's all about like our history and also like, you know, human history, the history of our families, of our communities, our societies. And so like if these people control how history is not necessarily just written, but how it's like remembered, like they have control over memory, then they can control our identities, I think, Mm. or how people perceive them. And so I think um, that's why they want such like extreme control over like the flow of information right now. 
And I think they're definitely trying to use AI for those ends, which again is why I think it's very important that people have physical books. And if you don't have physical books, have offline copies of, of other books and like remember to read, you know, yeah, it's good for you. And it's it good for good. your brain as you age and all of that stuff. And, um, you know, it's sort of getting phased out at a societal level, it seems like. And I think we should definitely uh, resist that because, you know, if they centralize control information and all of this, they'll invariably um, control all the historical accounts of how we got here, all of that. And, you know, he, what, you know, who the winners are and who, you know, his, all of that. So, you know, I think. You can't learn from the past if they control the story of the past. Yeah. Or if the past you're being told about never even happened. And I think a lot of, you know, my work specifically in history and also like my book and stuff, you know, was sort of trying to find, you know, what really happened and how we really got here and just trying to answer the questions about like, how did Epstein happen? You know, I mean, it's obviously a lot more than that. Um, but that's sort of how I, I got to answering those questions. And there's a lot of history that's like intentionally hidden from us. If these people, you know, in, in the text, you know, historical text textbooks and whatever that these people uh, write, I mean, they give very, you know, specific narratives that oftentimes are not accurate, <laughs> you know, and, and that's used to like shape identity. So like, you know, like U.S. public school, uh, American history classes, uh, pretty much every textbook I ever like encountered in grade school was like the U.S. government is like your father and it's been on this steady stream of progress from the revolution to now and it's so great and protects freedom and does all this great stuff. And then you find out the real stuff and you're like, whoa, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure most people in a, listening to this podcast have gone through that to some degree. But what happens when that those alternatives to finding out what's going on, like aren't readily available anymore? And how will that Im impact how people view and feel them, you know, feel about themselves? And I think, you know, that's that's part of it. But I think also, too, like in terms of our understanding of human history. I mean, there's so uh, little we know about like the distant past and all of that. And uh, uh, one of the reasons allegedly for this, you know, is the whole like burning of the library of Alexandria mm -hmm. and all of that. But with the internet, you know, if these guys take down the internet and try and relaunch it, you know, they could do something like that again, you know, like a digital version of that. Yeah. Because so many people have stored knowledge and books that aren't in print anymore and other things purely online. And so again, that's why I like really like to tell people to try and make some sort of offline or physical um, library, you know, because it's, I, I, they're definitely interested in, in purging, you know, historical accounts that don't favor their, how they want people to perceive things. And again, this is all about managing perception with the intention of, you know, controlling behavior. And a lot of that is memory. And a lot of that is identity and ultimately, you know, it comes down to information and, and data, ultimately, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, yeah. So anyway, that's my soapbox about identity and information. Okay, so I have two more quotes from the book that, um, well, okay, so I want to read this first quote, and then I'll read another one. If we understand the revolutionary transformations caused by new media, we can anticipate and control them. But if we continue in our self-induced subliminal trance, we will be their slaves. So this is why we're having this discussion. This is why we need to talk about AI, what it is, what it's doing to us mm -hmm. and everything like that, right? So the self-induced induced subliminal trance, he talks about this a lot in his book. He calls it narcissus narcosis. So here's another quote from the book. 
The hybrid or the meeting of two media is a moment of truth and revelation from which new form is born. For the parallel between two media holds us on the frontiers between forms that snap us out of the narcissus narcosis. The moment of the meeting of media is a moment of freedom and release from the ordinary trance and numbness imposed by them on our senses. So that's where we're at right now. You know, we're not numb to it yet. And we're like, we're right there at that spot where we can examine it and decide what we're going to do, you know? So we need to be mm-hmm. aware of, that's why we're having this discussion again. We need to be yeah, aware totally. of, of how AI changes the way we interact with people, information, and our surroundings. You know, we can't remain ignorant of of the environment that we're living in. Yeah, I mean, AI's rolled out as a novel tool, and this has happened with other stuff before. And if people don't aren't wary or like paying attention to it, it quickly moves from being a, a a tool to empower them to something else. And there's always this phase at the beginning where they want people to like onboard to a particular technology where it is open and useful like that. And then it starts to change, you know, if people aren't wary about it. So if you're using AI, make sure you're using it in such a way that it's a tool that is helping you, not one that is diminishing you. And not one that is endangering you in the event that these were on domestic terror, predictive policing, dissident, whatever, you know, all that stuff. When that gets rolled out, obviously, you should reconsider what you're doing. Um, But even before then, you know, you have to be aware of how you're using it and, and think that stuff through. Because if you just keep using it because it's, oh, it's convenient, 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 that has been used historically to herd people in a particular direction that isn't good for them or for human society. So I definitely think, and and ultimately leads to dumbing us down, right? Which, you know, there has been a progressive dumbing down of society uh, in definitely in the West, but uh, obviously it's happened elsewhere too. Um, And, you know, I would argue that there's a lot of intentionality behind that and it hasn't all been technology's fault, but it's definitely been an engineered thing and technology has been used in part to facilitate that engineering. So if you're going to engage with this kind of technology, you have to be aware that it can be used to do that to you. And there's an intention to have that happen to people who become dependent on it. So don't become dependent on it. You have to keep your relationship with it. So it's a tool serving you. And you're don't in it, it, you know, and one day the tables don't turn and then you're serving it, you know? Totally. But it's dangerous, you know, because you can like even going into it, knowing that, knowing everything that you just said, it's a narcosis, you know, like you can totally become immersed and unaware, you know, and all of a sudden the conveniences of it are much too great to even consider anything else. Yeah. I mean, if you're one of the people that feels like you can't handle that kind of situation, maybe you shouldn't use it yeah. at all. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that's my view about it. But I mean, you know, you just got to be wary that it's like a, a tool that can be used against you if you're not careful. And um, I mean, it's subtle, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to the social media stuff and how this was like sold to people as, oh, you can stay connected with everybody and it's going to make things so much better socially and there was no talk about all the data you're giving away to it. And it turned out to be like a huge data harvesting thing that actually made people more depressed, made people for feel more disconnected. Right. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily like always have um, those consequences long-term. And maybe if social media hadn't been so um, 
uh, I don't know, co-opted from the very beginning, it maybe it, it would have been different. I mean, we know also like Facebook, for example, experimented with making people more depressed by populating their news feeds a certain way. So maybe they've intentionally produced that outcome of making people feel more disconnected and more, you know, more depressed when they use it and all of that. Like maybe it's intentional and not necessarily social media that does that to people. I don't know, but um, it definitely has like changed. I mean, people engage differently with the discourse on, on social media than they would like in the real world, you know, and it's definitely had a lot of consequences that I think, you know, users of it don't necessarily think about. And then over the years that you're using it, you get acclimated and it gets normalized, but it's, it, it wasn't normal, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think people need to be wary about that kind of stuff with AI because that's how they did it, you know, before. Like, oh, everyone's using it. Look how cool it is. Look what I can do. And then you're on it. You give all your data away and then you end up feeling diminished, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, about this book, they, t- they talk about numbing our central nervous system. We are so stimulated with all of this stuff that we can get you know that we are mm-hmm. actually we, we're numb to it you know and um you know it's caused causes a lot of anxiety and stuff like that yeah. um i think i'm just gonna say there is a lot in this book that i think is worth considering and i know we talked about people should read books and i agree i love reading books you learn so much from them you learn so much more by reading and understanding an idea and thinking about it than you do from hearing somebody talk about it but not everybody can read you know not everybody has a lot of time to read everything that gets recommended to them or whatever so I think I want to put some of this stuff in the show notes so you know people can at least if they're not going to take the time to read the book maybe read some of the ideas in the book because I think if you can understand um, things to consider it's going to at least help a little bit in deciding where you're going to place AI in your life, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to find out if, you know, think about this stuff. Are you going to use it? How are you going to use it in such a way that it doesn't negatively impact you? Think about what your red lines are and pay attention so that you don't cross them or you avoid crossing them. Um, I think that's really the only way we can really interact with this stuff because to do it without being cognizant of the risks or, or aware of um, some of the agendas that AI is meant to serve and how it's meant, how, you know, the people dominating the field right now are seeking to use it mainly against us. You know, we have to be aware of that and ensure that it's not going to be used against us that way, at least as much as we can control, obviously. Um so yeah, I guess that's probably a good place to uh, to leave our, our discussion. So thanks a lot, Star, for being here. And thanks to everyone who listens uh, to this podcast. That is, of course, a production of Star and, and myself, even if Star isn't, you know, <laughs> necessarily part of the conversation. She's always part of the, part of the podcast. And with that being said, um, Star is also the person who does the show notes for every episode. So I'm not sure if everyone uh, listening takes time to look at the show notes, but you definitely should. And uh, I'm sure no one is better at telling you why than Star herself. (laughs) Thank you. I just wanted to, you know, remind everybody. So when you, you know, you get your podcast in the podcast app, there's a description. And then I always put the show note um, page in there. And so you should go there and check it out because there's all kinds of stuff on there. Anything that Whitney's talked about, you know, there's, 
some extra information sometimes, like if she's done an interview or something like that, that's related to what she talks about, you know, all kinds of stuff. Everybody knows what show notes are, right? But sometimes there's like playlists of clips from the podcast and all kinds of stuff like that. So definitely please check out the show notes page. And I wanted to say while you're there, check out the website too. You know, like a lot of people don't spend a lot of time exploring. You might go to the website when you see a link to an article or something like that, but there's a lot of stuff on there. Like, People are always emailing, asking, how can I find out where Whitney's new interviews are and stuff like that? There's a press and media page. Whitney's got all, we put all of her interviews on there. You can find all that. There's like an awesome search bar on the website. So if you're interested in something like, you know, CBDCs, just type that in the search bar. And if Whitney's done an interview on it, if, if she's done an article on it, if it comes up anywhere, it shows up. It's great. Really awesome. And then um, also to check out the FAQ on the website, the Frequently Asked Questions, there's a page and it's got all kinds of info, including stuff like how to follow a website with RSS, which is the technology that's used in podcasts. You know, when podcasts publish a new episode and how it just shows up in your app, that's RSS. So you can do that for websites too. And then whenever a website publishes something, it'll show up in your, in your app. It's great. And then along those lines, I wanted to mention that you should listen to your podcasts on a podcasting 2.0 app, which is, you know, a more advanced, it's got more advanced features. It's got transcripts and chapters, and you can make clips, you can leave comments, you can send lightning payments to the podcasts that you listen to, all kinds of really cool features. You should totally be listening on something that supports that sort of stuff. So I really love this app called Podverse. You can use it on your computer or you can use the app. It's called Podverse and uh, you can use it on your computer at podverse.fm. Super awesome. And uh, yeah, that's about it. And thank you to everybody who supports Whitney because that also supports me. <laughs> <laughs> well, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> thank you to the people listening to this. I never get to say that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I cut that out if you want. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's funny. I liked it. Okay. Yeah. Well, Star is amazing and has uh, kept Unlimited Hangout alive and probably wouldn't have survived uh, last year and, and some other things if it wasn't for her. So she definitely deserves your support for <laughs> sure. Um, and thanks for everyone who supported, uh, you know, the podcast and my work up and up and you know t through now. Um, I know I haven't producing as much content as I used to. Um, I've tried to keep members kind of updated without getting too personal about how, you know, things with my son are still going on and, you know, I had to move and all sorts of other stuff is, has been happening. And, you know, there's obviously some other stuff going on, but I'm hoping to get back to like a normal content production thing pretty soon. Hopefully uh, once, you know, kids are back in school and, in March, which is a little backward from the U.S. Because remember, I live in the Southern Hemisphere, so seasons are backwards. It's summer vacation <laughs> here now for uh, for us. But thanks for everyone who's been, you know, really supportive through all this uh, crazy stuff. Um, I'm sure things are only going to get crazier, not just for me, but but for everybody. But just want to say, you know, thank you all for, um, you know, allowing me to continue to, to do this work and to support other people who, you know, support me and the site, like Star. Um, and just, just can't thank you guys enough. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. Hopefully I'll get, you know, more back in the groove with having them out, you know, every two weeks, like I did, uh, before, you know, starting now-ish. 
Um, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully you got something out of uh, the conversation today. If you did, please share this podcast around. Be very appreciated and we'll catch you all in the next episode. Thanks so much.